Welcome to Trustworthy AI, Dearest Business Adoption of AI, hosted by Pamela Gupta, a leading voice in business strategy, technology, and cybersecurity. With extensive experience in global industry leadership, Pamela has explored critical themes like achieving business value with AI by adopting a holistic risk-based approach to AI trust. She defined eight essential pillars of trustworthy AI. Read more details at the trustedai.ai website. Her insights have shaped the way we look at the impact of cyber warfare on business, strategies for efficient digital transformation, and governance views on algorithmic failures. Join Pamela as she delves into her signature framework, AI Tips, standing for Artificial Intelligence Transparency, Integrity, Privacy, and Security. This podcast is all about operationalizing governance and building trustworthy AI systems from the ground up. Whether you're an industry professional or just AI curious, Trustworthy AI offers thought-provoking discussions and expert insights to guide the ethical future of technology. Hello and welcome to Trustworthy AI, de-risk business adoption of AI. Today we are joined with a very, very um, esteemed professional in the cybersecurity space, and her name is, uh, you probably do know her already, but I will introduce her, uh, Diana Kelly. She is CISO at Protect AI, and we are going to be talking about ML security lifecycle, machine learning uh, cycle, life cycle, and how to, um, you know, the nuances and the the obvious points for when it comes to security. Welcome, Diana. Thanks so much for having me here, Pamela. Now, I'd love to kind of just start off with, if you want to do a quick intro and then talk about uh, some of the, uh, you know, differences and the challenges we are seeing in AI ML space. Yeah, I, I have. I, I started out my career in network security, and then I pretty quickly realized that no matter what I did up to layer three, it was layer seven that was going to be the problem. So I really pivoted and started focusing very much on application security, which of course led me to DevOps and the DevSecOps revolution. So I have a, a deep appreciation for what goes into a secure software development lifecycle and how we've had to optimize for the sort of modern delivery in our CACD pipelines with DevSecOps. So when I started then looking at AI and ML security, I started to realize that we've got an ML ops lifecycle. And just as we had to create touch points within the DevOps lifecycle to build security and weave it throughout the entire process and make it iterative, I started to realize that that was something that we were gonna need to do in ML ops too. So started to really dive deep and try to understand what was the same because if you're a dev or DevSecOps professional, you are have a rich set of experience and knowledge that actually applies into MLSecOps. So there's, there's a lot of similarities because anytime that we're creating this process, that we're creating software that we're going to deploy, there are certain things that we need to do along the path. And then there are some, there are certainly some divergent points because uh, creating traditional mm. software is not exactly the same as uh, an ML lifecycle where you're going to be using models to analyze information, make predictions. It's it's a, it's a different approach. You know, a great example of that is at the beginning of a software development lifecycle, you have a bunch of people sit down, they they create requirements, and this can happen in machine learning too. 
But one of the conversations that could happen in machine learning is what could we do? Should we use machine learning for this? When you're writing software, it's we want to sell tickets to this concert. So what does that application on the web need to do to sell the tickets to the concert? But with ML, it may be we would love to understand how to improve this this concert ticket offering by understanding when people buy or some other you know pattern recognition within that massive amounts of data so there'd be a conversation and ideation of is this a, a solution that we can apply ml to is this are we going to apply it in the right way what sort of data are we going to need to train the model to ensure that it's going to give us answers that are going to be of value or useful to us and that's the kind of thing that in a, in a software development life cycle you often don't say what kind of data we need to train it you talk about mm. the data that 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 pro that system is going to process so similarities in that you still have a process that you follow. It is going to be an iterative process, just as in, in uh, modern DevSecOps, but with nuances very specific to machine learning and also the people in the pipeline, because now in machine learning, we've got machine learning engineers, got model risk officers, for example, we've got data scientists. So there are new uh, players and stakeholders within the lifecycle as we look at ML versus traditional dev. So clearly there are a lot of differences. There may be some semblance of that fishbone, you know, of development cycle, but that's where the similarity ends. Let me ask you this, you know, you mentioned data, right? Yeah. That is something, you know, when we are talking about creating secure SDLC in traditional systems, we did not have to worry too much about the data and how, what was you know, you could separate out production data from development data and developer access, right? Which is a one of, I would say, one of the foundations of a good security model was that developers shouldn't have access to production data. How has that changed? Yeah, isn't that funny? We, we for so many years, fought this fight. Of, and it was hard because not having access to production data could really impact the training uh, or, you know, the, the testing of the, the software because it's you testing it on data that was anonymized. So you, remember, we would have like format preserving tokenization because there was this, we needed the data to make sure that we could handle the scale, but we couldn't use production data. We had to get some kind of test data um, for it or at least tokenized or anonymized. Um, and now what's interesting is that you need actual data. I mean, there will be training data, but it, it has to be right. data that's going to be used to train the model. So it's not just a bunch of bits and bytes that are going to replicate it, what it would look like if I have a bunch of users on my system. We genuinely need to train, have active real data that we can train the systems on so that they're going to have uh, accurate outcomes. And that is, that's a very different way of thinking of it, because as you said, you know, traditionally my security mindset is just making sure that there's no live or production data in there. And in the, the the SDLC, mm -hmm. as we look at ML ops, you have to be very that the data is used for the training. It's it's part of the outcome of that system of that the, of how well that model is going to operate. Yes, that and also, what do you what are your thoughts on? You know who are the developers now in the real in the new world of AI ML, right? Earlier it was software engineers, right? Uh, now it's data scientists. Now is it a world that belongs to both? 
or and how what do you see as the interaction i I think it absolutely is going to belong to both i mean you're right like as we look in the ml world we have you know things like the model risk officer we have machine learning engineers if data scientists who are working in the jupyter notebooks and analyzing um, the data and trying to figure out is this something that is, is working the way that we need to or not. You know, we need to, to tweak how we're training it or tweak the data that we're training on. But it's still part of the software development lifecycle. Uh, you know, some people will say code is code and you know, kind of like, oh, it's all the same. It's it's not all the same. How we use it, how we develop is is different in different use cases. And certainly there are some inflection points that are different between uh, software development, you know, standard DevOps and, and ML SecOps. However, uh, machine learning and those models, they're running in systems that we already know. So they're right. It's not that they're going to, we didn't invent a new way to uh, have communications go over the internet. TCPIP is still how that information is going to get passed. They're still running on operating systems. Yeah. They're running inside our, our, you know, Kubernetes instances, for example. So we're still deploying it on a, on a known software. And that creates this really interesting. I feel like MLSecOps is really like part of the bigger DevOps movement because it's about the ML teams communicating with the DevSecOps teams to make sure that the software and the architectures that where the, the machine learning models are running are going to be fit for purpose and secure. So mm -hmm. it's really this whole layered set of, of work that needs to get done. But we have added these new folks, these new stakeholders into the conversation like data scientists. And data scientists are absolutely brilliant at data science. They were not taught, most of them don't get taught application security because they're busy mm -hmm. learning data science. So I came across a piece uh, a couple of weeks ago that was a, you know, it was a really interesting piece and in that it was written by somebody who's a part of a machine learning lifecycle and was saying, you know, hints and tips for best practices for data scientists not to store, uh, how to store information in Jupyter Notebooks. And this this article was written a couple of weeks ago had information in there like if you're Storing sensitive information in your Jupyter notebook and examples of sensitive information that could be API keys, uh, passwords, mm -hmm. PII or PHI. So this article was helping the data scientists understand if you're going to store something like that, encrypt it and make sure that the access to that notebook is protected and limited on a business need to know, which to, you know, for us security people, this is our, this is how we're like, if it's, if it's sensitive, of course you encrypt it. If, you know, don't store it if you don't need to. This is, this is the, this is how we live and breathe. But of course a, a data scientist doesn't necessarily think that way. Uh, so there's this whole group that we now have to have the conversation with. And, you know, once you, 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 you explain to them why there's risk and why this could put you know, data and expose sensitive data, they get it, but it, it, we have to have that conversation. We have to begin to educate the folks in the, the machine learning life cycle about these security considerations that for us in security may feel very much like that's, of course, we always do that. But, you know, we forget that the, everybody doesn't think with that mindset. So I think it's really about having empathy and conversation and communication so that those teams understand security impacts and, and potential risks. And one of the things that I think really helps to foster that communication, because especially because I'm an experiential learner, so I'm a little biased, um, is to, mm -hmm. to do threat modeling with those teams, right? right? What could go wrong? What Because 
anytime people go through threat modeling, they get, they see it and they're like, oh, of course this makes sense. And once it makes sense to you, then you start to take those more secure actions. So it's really just about just having that conversation, helping people learn. And like I said, um, I think threat modeling is one a great way to have that conversation and get everybody to get in the mix. They're on the same page. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I agree because sometimes it, this is not, doesn't come natively, right? right. So it, it is not innate, right? It is, uh, we've seen this with security development teams uh, for this battle, right? Yeah. Where, you know, how to securely develop um, code is, you know, you're going for developing functionality or meeting a business objective. You're not thinking about what could go wrong. But, uh, and so it's a similar, I find it's a similar environment where we, what we felt we had to do with educating developers in security. Now it is with um, developers as a security engineer, as well as data scientists. I would, you know, combine the two in that category. But what you bring up is a very good point, is not only having that conversation, but having a um, means to provide them, you know, of how they can do it. And that that is, of course, you know, I know you with Protect AI and you're offering a tool in that space, which I think is very much required in this field because it's not just a question of having that right intention. If if it's difficult to do, if you have to do three steps and you have, you know, the project is supposed to have been delivered 10 days ago, you're not looking at those three steps. You're looking at how to, you know, go to minus three steps, not plus three steps, you know. In other words, if you can make it easier, it is going to be more achievable. I, I totally um, am on board with that. I agree. Yeah, um, Giving folks the tools and giving them access to that. And, and one of the things I like about Protect AI is that, yes, we have a commercial tool, but we also have open source tools that, that teams sure, can sure. use right now, like NB Defense, which helps to, it scans Jupyter Notebooks for that sensitive information. And, and Model Scanner, which if you're using uh models, if you're downloading models from some of the better known uh, models user model repositories, Hugging Face is one of the most well-known. Mm -hmm. It allows you to scan that model before you run it. And if so that if there's anything you know, nasty in there, malicious code, you'll be able to see that before you run it. And you know, that can really help a lot. But the other thing that um, comes to mind as you were talking, Pamela, is that you, you, you kind of touched on this point about resources for developers and part of the the movement as we were going sdlc to ssdlc you know secure software development right. um devops to devsecops part of it was actually an, a conversation that we had to have with executives and leaders and that conversation was around giving the teams the time to get educated and and rewarding them for having secure and resilient software because the the classic project management triangle right of better faster uh cheaper right and better if we replace that with more secure you know more secure faster cheaper you'll hear people say oh well executives are always going to default out to faster cheaper but i don't think that's the case i think that the executive's going to you know default out to what's the right thing for my business so having that conversation with the the leaders of organizations so that they can understand that training your data scientists and training your ML engineers on secure activities throughout the machine learning life cycle is ultimately going to be a benefit to the company because you're going to have 
better performing models, you're going to have less risk and exposure for the organization. Yeah, and that ties, uh, you know, to the, the reason for this podcast, right? How do you identify what can be a roadblock? What can actually take away from what is your intended outcome? You know, what can be a deterrent or a roadblock or a or it can just make the project go south, right? How do you identify that and avoid that? So that's that's really important. And hey, by the way, I love the fact that you have both a um, free, you know, open source and a, and a uh, you know paid version of the. It's I think it's an extremely important thing to be able to not only want to do the right thing, but if you can if you can do it easily, then it becomes more compelling. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You made a great point about one thing that I want to kind of expand on a little bit about threat modeling, and you also talked about model risk uh, officers, right? Um, I think it's brilliant to bring that up because sometimes, as we talked about, developers or data scientists or whoever the stakeholders are, are focused more on what they have to produce and the functionality, not what can go wrong. But that doesn't mean that they don't know what that can be if if you know if you ask them that question so posing that question i think is extremely important can you talk a little bit more about that i'm really interested in your thoughts yeah i i, I love that because you know what you're really getting at is that these are very smart people doing a really important job you know sometimes i and i haven't heard this so much in machine learning but i do remember this back in early days of secure software development lifecycle and and you know it's just like the developers are just idiots they just write bad code and it's like come on they're not they're trained professionals you know that are doing a good job it's just they may not have gotten the awareness of security and i think it's exactly the same here machine learning engineers data scientists they're brilliant people but they may not have that security mindset and i love how you were even saying it you know it may not be native right it's not innate yet for them but that's what threat modeling can really help bring out because we're all human beings are actually pretty good at risk. We forget how good we are at risk, but we make a lot of risk decisions. We're pretty good. And I say pretty good because we're all very good at figuring out the risk of crossing the street now or waiting a couple seconds when the car gets closer, right? We go now. And And I'll be on the phone and looking at your text while you do that. Right, right. We go at the right speed. We can make that risk. Sometimes we're, you know, risk is if it, because it can feel, it feels really like personal. It can feel more um, intuitive. So a lot of people are more scared to get into an airport plane than to get into a car, even though if you look just purely at the data, you're safer getting into the airplane. Uh, so, <laughs> That's right. So risk is this kind of funny thing. It's got this very personal element. Uh, we can also choose to accept risk or not. Again, that's another personal thing. Um, and then there are some, you know, how we interpret the numbers and understand and, and really be into to frame the true risk to us. And threat modeling is such a beautiful exercise for that because you bring in people, especially in ML, you bring in engineers and scientists that haven't thought about what can go wrong because most people are thinking about what can go right and how can we make it go more right and how can we make it go faster right there? Like, what are these wonderful possibilities? And security, sometimes we get the bad rap of we're like, that's scary. Uh, but threat modeling is kind of this nice conversation where you say, okay, well, what can the downsides be? What could what could go wrong? And what you see is because these are very smart, capable people, as they start shifting their thinking a little bit into a threat model mindset, that they begin to become 
engaged in the process. And now they're the ones that are going to you know, start doing mini threat models in their head as they're doing their work. So now rather than being like the folks that could expose data, right, they become your front lines and they're thinking through as I'm developing this new model, as I'm using this data, am I deploying it out? What might be something that could go wrong for the company? And is there a control or a way that I can, you know, fix that or, or make that better and, and safer? So um, I think um, that is, these are all really, really important things to know, right? When you are going into uh, examining the world of ML life cycle. Yeah. Um, are there other um, caveats or nuances or, you know, extremely different uh, things that people should be looking out for? You know, whether it's management, whether it's, you know, project manager or the developers, what, what, um, yeah, if you could please expand on that. Yeah, I would say really taking a, a much deeper dive and a closer look at the machine learning supply chain. So a lot of these foundational mm. models that are available, they're open source. It's it's helping adoption and, and time to value go much more quickly. But making sure that you understand the provenance of that model, that you've scanned it before you run the model, for example. Uh, so that's one of the supply chain aspects. The, the data itself that you're using, making sure that it's yeah. not corrupt, that it's not bias. Models drift towards bias over time. So you want to be extra careful that you don't train a model with bias because that's going to only automate and produce bias outcomes. Um, and then being able to understand the pieces of software that are associated with or running your models. So some of the, the most well-known uh, pieces of software for running, you know, for the pipeline are like SageMaker, Databricks, uh, MLflow. MLflow is an open source tool. Open source is wonderful for companies that want to, you know, that may not have the money for commercial tools or who really just want to support the open source community. There are some some organizations that are very, very, you know, very, that that's an important tenet of who, of who that organization is. But these pieces of software, they can have vulnerabilities in them. One of our lead soft, mm -hmm. uh, lead threat researchers at at Protect AI found a vulnerability in MLflow, for example, and it's been fixed. It's all taken care of, but it created to a, a, a it was a local file include, and it could have led to exposure. So taking a look at that, um, some of these tools, you know, in some cases, the tools that we're running our ML models on are a little bit uh, early in the security journey is the best way I can say it. So, you know, they may not understand fine-grained access control or role-based access control. Right. So, you know, there's like one login for the entire organization. So the, the concept of least privilege hasn't been applied. So also in the supply chain, being careful of what you're using to run and develop your, your machine learning models so that you've got a very robust chain. It's nothing here. If somebody who's listening to this and is going that I'm, I'm a DevSecOps expert and this doesn't sound that different. It, it's, it's not entirely different. I mean, there are absolutely and, and differences. Yes, exactly. That we have to, like we were talking about data, we were talking about the ideation phase, we're talking about software, when you put it out there, it quote degrades just because over time, somebody might find a vulnerability, but the software itself, when it's running, isn't changing. Your model is learning all the time. It's dynamic by nature. Uh, so there are differences, but conceptually, if we think about a development life cycle that we put security touch points through, it's very similar. And the supply chain, right, keeping that supply chain safe and secure 
is also, that's the meta concept. And then when we get into the particulars of machine learning, we look at things like the, the model provenance, um, the data. And also another big component is the ability to manage the process. We've deployed 100 models across our organization. And we find out that yeah. um, that model had something malicious in it, had code perhaps. Um, and we, we have it used or we're running it in multiple instances, or we've used the same data set to train multiple models. We find out that there was something flawed in that data set for whatever. Being able to identify immediately all of the places where those models are running and then potentially even using a policy to gate out that model and stop it from running. This can be really, really powerful. And it's something that we've, we've got similar controls for a lot of the core servers or other workloads that we're using in organizations. That level of getting to that auditability, that governance um, in ML is still maturing. So that's another really important part of the supply chain and of the management of the life cycle. Wow, that that's ex excellent to see how it all comes together, yeah. right? I mean, cybersecurity is um, a piece in that and how to, and it's a very complex and a really um, difficult yeah. piece to um, to get your hands around or, or brain around, wrapped around. Um, what I like to say is AI is a complex field and cybersecurity is a complex field. You combine the two, it's really not a 2x, it's algorithmic, it's, it's, it's a explosion, you know, of complexity. So thank you so much. I really appreciate all your uh, wonderful insights and practical, actionable insights, which makes it even more um, valuable in my book, because as we are looking at what are the challenges it's really important to know how to solve for them. And uh, thank you for providing that. Oh, thank you time. so much for the opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you.